Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today I am speaking with Dr. Diana Driscoll. Dr. Diana Driscoll is an optometrist who became passionate about helping those with complex health conditions as a result of her own disability with POTS, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and ME-CFS. Dr. Driscoll was completely disabled by this constellation of invisible illnesses, as was her young son. While on disability for over a decade and unable to get help from her doctors, she began formalized research group through genetic disease investigators. Now fully recovered, she's the clinical director of POTS Care, the recipient of two patents to date, the president of TJ Nutrition, and she continues her research today. This long journey not only offers help and hope for others dealing with invisible illnesses, but has culminated with unique ways to maximize health, longevity, and quality of life for others as well. Dr. Driscoll has always been a bit of a geek and graduated summa cum laude from both the University of Texas at Austin and the University of Houston. Dr. Driscoll is a patient advocate for others dealing with invisible illnesses such as POTS, dysautonomia, Gillers-Danlos syndrome, MCAS or mast cell activation syndrome, chronic fatigue, chronic dry eyes, chronic Lyme, vascular abnormalities, fibromyalgia, and multiple sclerosis. She has created a line of supplements focused on supporting the vagus nerve and is expanding this line to include help for brain, moods, and immune support. She's here to discuss how she figured out the role of the vagus nerve, how it ended up not being strictly a vagus nerve problem, and how this knowledge can help those with chronic illnesses as well as those wanting to maximize the quality of their lives. I hope you really enjoyed this wonderful conversation I had with Dr. Driscoll. She gives us a lot of information and a lot to think about in this whole constellation of symptoms that we see with POTS and EDS and chronic fatigue and mast cell activation. So please enjoy the show. Welcome, Dr. Driscoll. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast today, and I know that we're going to cover a lot of really important topics today. And um, you know, as we were connecting before the call, um, you know, I've seen a trend in my own practice of this constellation of symptoms with POTS and Ehlers-Danlos and um, mast cell activation syndrome, and you know how these all kind of fit in together. And there's a common through line and you know theme to these um, presentations. And so I know that you came to this work through your own personal story and your own personal journey. And let's just start there and just really, how did you learn all about this? Well, first, thank you for having me, Dr. Schaffner. You always do such a great job of getting out some um, of the latest health information. I hope I can do you justice by some of what we'll talk about today. But yeah, it was it was an incredibly long journey for me, um, one I wouldn't necessarily want to relive. Um, I got a virus when I went to Costa Rica and I went on a mission trip. So, but prior to going, I wasn't a sick person. I was in great shape. I loved to exercise and I just didn't see this coming, but I got a virus. All of us got the same virus, so I can't blame the virus, but I was the only one who didn't seem to recover from it. And mere weeks after getting the virus, I was disabled. Eventually I was diagnosed with POTS or dysautonomia. POT stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's a condition that affects the autonomic nervous system. That's a system of the body that you really shouldn't need to think about. 
includes regulation of your heart rate, blood pressure, digestion, temperature control, and such. But eventually, it morphed into extreme and chronic fatigue, more presentation. It was even so much more than that. Nothing in my body really was unaffected. But even scarier, uh, our kids began to develop symptoms, and my son ended up being completely disabled. And he was forced to miss almost three years of school while we looked for answers. He started to waste away. He even developed severe osteoporosis. He broke his arm just putting on a jacket and again throwing a ball. But as sick as we were, nobody had any answers for us. In your story, as you're saying this, you know, this is, um, you know, a story I hear, you know, often in in my office of, you know, this illness um, and people often turn to many doctors without the answers. And so what, where did you start to find answers about what was going on with you? Right. Boy, I went to probably 50 doctors the first three years. Well, I was so dramatically affected that I thought, this isn't some subtle condition. I think we're just not getting to the right doctor, right? And traveled around looking for that right doctor who never came. But um, I ended up at the Mayo Clinic. I think most of us end up trying to find that top specialist and participated in their clinical trials and was eventually diagnosed there with POTS. And I celebrated that diagnosis thinking, yay, we have an answer. We know what this is. No, no. I participated in their clinical trials. And their final conclusion was that, well, POTS patients are perfectly normal. They're just more aware of their own body, bodily functions. Oh, that wow. couldn't have been more, more far from the truth. They also sent me to a geneticist upon request to be checked because I noticed I was hypermobile and I'd been starting to look online. Why do some people not recover from this? And that was one thing that popped up. And the geneticist is the one who said, this is likely Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, but we don't really have a way to objectively diagnose that. So although I got those labels, they ended up being really not helpful at all. So that's when my husband and I set up genetic disease investigators. We set up a corporation to do formal studies and I donated most of the money to do those studies myself from my disability income, ironically, because I thought, well, we can't use this for anything, uh, but we needed to move quickly. And that was that was helpful. It really was. And much of what we learned too, and I think it's important for others to know, much of what we learned absolutely is helpful with some of these chronic illnesses, but it can help people who are not necessarily sick, but who are maybe not living as well as they could, or they're blaming some more subtle symptoms on, well, I'm getting old or I'm under stress. They're not living their very best lives. And I think we can be more proactive. And I think you and I share in that goal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, that's such a great point. And even, you know, with the you know name of my podcast, it's like, you know, we see patients, you know, on this, you know, chronic, um, you know, illness spectrum. And then, you know, what do we learn from that where we can also prevent and also optimize people who haven't gotten to that you know, that point, right? And so I think there's a right. lot um, of how we've learned and what we've learned in practice to help 
um, people. And I, I think there's this general probably attitude in our society too of what is health and what is it, you know, really to feel well. And a lot of people just think um, certain things are normal um, that we shouldn't uh, normalize at all. So, um, so no, it's such a you know wonderful you know mission that you set out on that you turned your own journey into research and you know finding uh, the answers. And so, um, so where did that lead you? So you put a group of did you put a group of researchers or doctors or what was right. your group and what did, what did they start to find? Right. Well, imagine this group. It's mainly <laughs> doctors online, which was freelancers really most of the time, who that you, you can hire from around the world, which is just amazing because I didn't need active practitioners. I really did need researchers and biochemists were important. Geneticists were important. I still work with a geneticist today out of India, which is amazing. But I'm in my bed 80% of the time with a little bed desk figuring out what we need to do next. So we started in the eyes and I was blessed to be an eye doctor. And I think that gave me so many advantages. One, it was a different way to, to approach the condition to start. And we had an office. So my husband's also an optometrist. And when we did physical studies, we had a place to do them. So that helped. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wish I could say it was all altruistic at that point. But again, we were so sick and my son and I, especially, we really had to get some answers. But I thought that's an opportunity. We're set up really perfectly to try to get some answers for people. And and we need to take take um, stock of how we can start to approach this to move it faster. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, research moves so slowly I thought we, we just can't wait that long. Mm -hmm. So what can we do to speed things up? So I was kind of put in a perfect position, I guess, if you want to say that, to start to work on it. But yeah, that's how it started. Mm -hmm. You bet. That's not how it ended, but that's yeah. how it started. <laughs> I know. And I think, you know, a common theme that we talk about in the podcast often is that I think the average time of, um, you know, getting something that's in, you know, research to actually active practice is around, you know, 17 years, right? So who can wait around, you know, that long to, you know, um, wait for somebody, um, you know, to read the research and to, you know, get these answers sooner. You have to often be, you know, your own advocate. And so, um, so no, it's really, you know, impressive. Diana. And so, um, so yeah, this team of researchers, you know, you have this, you know, office, you have this, you know, lens literally where you're looking, you know, your training and your, you know, husband's training is looking at, you know, the health of, um, you know, the eyes and obviously how that ties into the brain and everything. And so how, you know, where did you all start with finding a way to really understand what was really wrong with your body? How did this virus that, you know, you got in Costa Rica completely debilitate you? Right. And, oh, boy, it, it was so many different layers, honestly, Christine. It was one thing we'd figure out. I thought, we're done. We have it. No. And then there was the next layer. And then we figured that out. I thought, okay, we're done. We have it. No, no. It was, it, that's why it took over 10 years. But um, when we looked in the eyes, we look at a few things. I guess that could be another <laughs> podcast because we really get deep into this. But ultimately, we were able to figure out a, that there was a propensity for abnormal intracranial pressure, and we had to to address that. But then later, I had to jump into um, my gut 
because I ended up with complete gastroparesis. Just there was no movement at all. And I wasn't able to get any help with it. So that directed the next layer Mm -hmm. (laughs) of research immediately. And so, um, you know, we mentioned already a little bit, and there's a, you know, conversation out there in alternative medicine. There's a lot of talk about the vagus nerve, and which is the 10th cranial nerve, and how that can interplay, you know, with our symptoms. And so, why I bring this up now? So, with the gastroparesis and the gut function, obviously, there's a whole nervous system in the gut, and we also have the vagus nerve that is really critical to our digestion and, you know, stimulating, you know, you know, all of our digestive juices to get, you know, motility going. And so, um, what, what did you learn about the vagus nerve through, through this process? Yeah. And I think my experience, I just had to work through it because I was forced to, honestly, um, for a long time, I had kind of IBS type symptoms and I varied between constipation and diarrhea, but eventually, as I mentioned, it, it just came to a screeching halt. So I had used Miralax for about a year every day, and then it progressed to no bowel movements. And I had gone without a bowel movement for about 11 days and I had tried everything. So I saw my doctor and she didn't have anything new to suggest, but because I had some pain in my lower right hand quadrant of my abdomen, she sent me to a urologist to rule out a kidney stone. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange. That's not really how they present, but I don't think she knew what else to do. Mm -hmm. But the urologist gave me some dye to drink to check for stones and I had no stones. Great. But he was one of those super nice, super smart guys. So I explained to him that I suspected the valve between my large and small intestine, the ileocecal valve, which is in that lower right-hand quadrant, was maybe stuck and could be the source of the pain I was having. So I showed him what I was working on concerning the vagus nerve and why I was thinking in that direction. He was fascinated by it. So he thought it was real plausible. And he sent me to a surgeon that day to see if the surgeon could maybe open that valve, if that was the issue, the ileocecal valve. But the surgeon said, Diana, oh, if you think something is wrong with your vagus nerve, you don't want to have abdominal surgery unless it's life-threatening because we cut right through those nerves. We cause gastroparesis. So I was really grateful for his honesty. I just walked out, but I still had no answers. And I went to the emergency room. They gave me prokinetics, which is a drug to try to force a bowel movement, nothing. Um, And then I was looking at about two weeks at that point. But this was an amazing thing that happened then. I got a kidney stone. This was the weirdest thing. I'd never had a kidney stone before. And I, but boy, if you ever have one, you'll know you, you can't miss these symptoms when they do hit. So I called the urologist and I said, you are going to think I'm crazy. I know three days ago, I did not have a stone. I get that, but I do now. And he met me at the hospital and sure enough, had a stone. He removed it. And I remembered waking up from anesthesia and he was just standing right there and said, Diana, you're right. I was like, what? He said, it's your ileocecal valve. And I said, how did you know? He said, well, that dye I gave you three days ago is still in you, but it's all crammed up against that valve. So amazing. We got confirmation. It was actually the ileocecal valve. So then I said, okay, what do we do? He said, I have no idea. So I went home. I still had no answers, but I knew 
I was heading in the right direction um, in my suspicion. So interestingly, my gallbladder also wasn't working. They had tested it and my ejection fraction was pitiful. It was 8% and the doctors wanted me to remove it. But honestly, I thought without gallstones or some sort of organ infection or whatever, it didn't sound urgent. And I really wanted to try to put the pieces of the puzzle together to try to save that organ. So fortunately I did. My gallbladder works great, but, <laughs> but um, I, I ended up laying in bed and thinking, what now? I, I didn't know where else to go. I'd kind of exhausted all my resources. So I thought, well, I'm just going to have to assume I'm right. Let's say it is my vagus nerve. What could I do? And I remembered back in school learning about the vagus nerve and the professor saying, um, there are two pieces to the vagus nerve. There's the long preganglionic portion, which goes from the brain down the neck into the chest cavity and then into the abdominal area. It's a very long nerve. But then there's a small gap and there's a tiny postganglionic vagus nerve. And I remembered him saying the postganglionic vagus nerve is so small, it's almost a part of the organ itself. I just have no idea, Christine, why I remembered these <laughs> freakish details, you know. Nor does my husband. I tell him these things, and he just thinks that is the strangest thing you remember. But I thought, okay, I should still have that postganglionic vagus nerve. I'm just assuming my preganglionic vagus nerve is defunct. So what could I do? So I worked the problem. I thought, okay, how could I stimulate that postganglionic vagus nerve? Um I thought, what is the neurotransmitter? Because, of course, nerves communicate with chemicals, right? Neurotransmitters. And I thought, well, the neurotransmitter for the vagus nerve is acetylcholine. But that's not a drug. The body breaks it down immediately. So you have to use an imitator or what we call an agonist. So I had to think back, okay, what is the agonist for the vagus nerve? And I thought, oh, well, that's easy. Because the vagus nerve is the only nicotinic acetylcholinergic nerve in the body. And I remembered that. So the reason we call it that is because it's agonist is nicotine. So I called my husband at the office and asked him to swing by the drugstore on the way home and pick up a nicotine patch for me. He thought it was really strange. He was getting a little more used to me doing science <laughs> experiments on my body though. But I didn't know if it mattered where I put it, but I, I imagined the nicotine going through the skin, which it does, it's transdermal, and landing on the receptor of the postganglionic nerve and then triggering the nerve. And sure enough, I put it in that lower right-hand corner and about an hour, hour and a half into it, things started to move, that valve opened. I had a normal bowel movement. What? Yeah. I use that patch every day for four days and had a bowel movement every day. But by the fourth day, the inflammation activated by the nicotine was giving me itching, highs. It was red, purplish. Uh, it felt like I was being eaten by fire ants. I remember thinking, oh, I've ruined everything, you know, oh. but I had to stop using it because nicotine is a double-edged sword. It clearly was triggering that receptor, which was awesome, but it was also activating inflammatory cells. So uh, it was working against me. And in the long run, I had to think of something else. 
that's fascinating and um, you know just such another unique um, way to look at the problem, right? Than what other people are even talking about um, now with stimulating the vagus nerve. There's some people, you know, talking about doing um, stimulating the gag reflex and you know all these mechanical things to stimulate it. But this is another way to think about how to actually. Um, stimulate um the the nerve where the action is right um right. and so so you um nicotine worked but clearly it wasn't the solution because of the side effects you were getting and so where did you go next right well when the nicotine worked i knew I learned a couple of things. One was that receptor worked great. And all the research today in POTS was looking at autoimmunity affecting the receptors. And although I didn't have any signs of autoimmunity, that's where everybody was looking. Well, clearly it wasn't an autoimmune problem affecting the receptor. The receptor worked great, okay? So we could walk away from autoimmunity and that was hugely helpful. I knew it was either a vagus nerve problem, the preganglionic vagus nerve was damaged or defunct for some reason, or it could be a neurotransmitter problem. And I, I always say to stay in the science, the answers are there. Uh, we have to differentiate which one it is. So what I did, and we did this over four and a half years, Christine, was we sent out symptoms checklists to POTS patients, chronic fatigue patients, fibromyalgia patients, and interestingly, PTSD patients. They can also end up with autonomic dysfunction. And in those symptoms checklists, I tucked in 35 symptoms of anticholinergic poisoning. Now, no one here has been poisoned. We knew that. But if your acetylcholine, your neurotransmitter release is so low, uh, you can develop symptoms and they're not all vagus nerve symptoms. They present as anticholinergic syndrome. So the majority of patients in all those categories had the majority of symptoms of, of anticholinergic poisoning. So I was able to figure out that the vagus nerve problem is a secondary issue. The primary problem was a neurotransmitter issue and it was affecting more than the vagus nerve. It was affecting other parasympathetic nerves like the lacrimal nerve that controls tear production and even the central nervous system. That's the acetylcholine needed by the brain. I certainly couldn't think. I got to the point I couldn't stay awake. Um, so it's essential to pick those apart because if you treat it as a vagus nerve problem, the patient can get some benefits, but will still be sick. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, taking a step back, um, if people are thinking about themselves listening to this, how, um, you know, maybe going through a couple checklists of the differentiators between, you know, vagus nerve and then acetylcholine, you know, issues, what were the main, what do the symptoms look like? How do they differ? Right. And what you kind of do is you take symptoms of anticholinergic anticholinergic poisoning and turn it down a notch. So the things that become the most obvious really are a tendency for constipation, fatigue, brain fog, large pupils, because pupils, if you're in the same light, the only thing that will change your pupil size is the autonomic nervous system and a tendency to get flushing and dry eyes, even dry mouth. Those are the ones you usually see. So in patients, they'll tend to be forgetful. They'll uh, tend to be sluggish. 
it had those dry eyes. You can just see the big pupils from across the room unless they're on medications that will work against that. And you know that it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. And then what would primarily be just vagus nerve symptoms like alone if you really feel like there's yeah. an issue with the actual nerve? Right. And it's always a good review. To, what does the vagus nerve do? Mm-hmm. Um, stomach acid production goes down because that's under control of the vagus nerve. Uh, the pyloric valve at the base of the stomach is controlled by the vagus nerve. And I remember sometimes the food would just sit in my stomach and wouldn't go anywhere. You can watch for that. The gallbladder ends up not doing well. Pancreatic uh, enzymes are decreased. So patients may or may not know those aspects, but they start to show some malabsorption syndromes. Um, The peristalsis or the movement of the food or or, uh, stool ultimately in the GI tract becomes sluggish and you can even end up with gastroparesis. So interestingly though, the vagus nerve is not just digestive and it does calm heart rate. Uh, it allows calming of breathing. Like if something scares you and everything gets all agitated, um, it allows you to calm down again. Um, but it's also the anti-inflammatory pathway of the body. That was not my science. Um, Dr. Kevin Tracy figured that out at the Feinstein Institute of Medicine. And that's huge to understand. So many people deal with inflammation on a chronic basis if they have chronic illness, certainly. And it's part of aging, too. So you want your vagus nerve to be working very well if you deal with inflammation. And sometimes people who fight inflammation can't get on top of it um, will also, uh, they have to consider the possibility it could be a vagus nerve issue. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing that differentiation. And then, so um, you figured out, you know, the whole nicotine piece, and then you went and figured out more around the neurotransmitters. And so and the neurotransmitter piece and the acetylcholine piece. And so what was your next discovery in this process? Right. This was, this is a matter of um, a nerd really <laughs> in the kitchen trying to put this together. Um, I loved organic chemistry, and I had to just kind of think back. Um, could we put this together? Can't wait for a drug. Could we use the mechanism of action of certain supplements if combined in a certain way? Could I make it stimulate that postganglionic vagus nerve or the receptor itself like nicotine did? Uh, could we also design it to cross the blood-brain barrier because I wanted to boost the, the brain function? So had some goals. Mm-hmm. Um, first, it had to be already be regarded and safe by the FTA, any ingredient we used. And then secondly, I really thought maybe this is a genetic problem with acetylcholine, with the ability to manufacture acetylcholine, because it was genetic disease investigators. What I thought, oh, this is it, you know? (laughs) No, it wasn't. But it did affect some people. Um, There were a couple issues I looked at, and they affected maybe one out of every 50 people. But in the general population, it was more like about one every 500. But it wasn't the reason. Um, I was hoping to find the reason. But I wanted to have workarounds for those genetic issues. I I didn't want us or anybody else to have to know their genes to know if if a mix could help them. And then a third, what we watched so carefully was the only way to make sure that uh, the vagus nerve actually got triggered was to watch for a bowel movement. 
So that was the only objective um, way I could check. There's no blood test for acetylcholine because the body breaks it down so fast. So we were very focused on triggering a bowel movement. And of course, as I mentioned, it had to cross the blood-brain barrier to help with cognition. So I just sat down and worked the science, honestly. And then it was a fair amount of trial and error to get the blend just right. So it would stimulate the postganglionic nerve, but not overstimulate. If you overstimulate it, one, that works against you. But the receptors can start to shut down. And then working around the genes, some of the ingredients actually shut each other down if the blend isn't just right. So it, it took a little bit of work there, but I excel in, in nerdism. <laughs> Good thing, yeah, right? Absolutely. Um, so I certainly wasn't going to stop there and put it together. And um, then I had two lab rats. My daughter also developed pods, although she wasn't as disabled as we were, but we had the three of us to start working on it. And we did. So we put that together and now it's known as Parasim Plus. And eventually when I got all this done, I thought, what am I going to call this? Or what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say it supports the parasympathetic nervous system, not just the vagus nerve, but plus it crosses mm-hmm. the blood brain barrier to, to boost cognition. So it was awesome to be able to give this to my son and he started to absorb nutrients again and he his growth resumed and his bones started to heal etc but it was really a scary time so this took a while to come up with and as you were formulating this were you seeing results within your family and yourself and this was kind of the the missing piece that really allowed you all to get well did you did you find that Yeah, that was actually the second, and that was probably the biggest piece. Um, High intracranial pressure was a problem for us, too, and I released that in the Driscoll Theory. In fact, a lot of this is in the Driscoll Theory, that book I put out a few years ago, um, and we explained all that. But this was the piece that um, no one had ever put this together. This really was a discovery, and so I received a patent for it. Actually, I received two patents, which was amazing to me that this got missed, the ability to be able to trigger that vagus nerve with something oral. It wasn't intuitive at all, but being able to absorb nutrients again, getting the the gut working, and then we could actually start to calm down a little bit. I was hyperadrenergic pause. Like I was just flooded with adrenaline, norepinephrine. And um, I was shaking. I was so hyper, if you will. Certainly couldn't sleep most of the time until I just got so exhausted that I couldn't stay awake. But it allowed things to calm down. And all the doctors had tried, and I could understand why, they tried to calm the sympathetic nervous system, the system of the body that gets you all riled up, right? And they'd give me Xanax, which probably allowed me to survive. But no one thought... Does the parasympathetic nervous system maybe need a little boost here? Is mm-hmm. it? It's a two-way street, and it was so important to put that in place. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, um, when you kind of look back, and you know, hindsight, and um, seeing really, you know, what you know, why you developed POTS, and kind of what happened, you know, in, in your history, and then we also mentioned, you know, um, your hypermobility and also, um, you also see this constellation with mast cell activation syndrome. What, what was the, um, you know, what is your, um, you know, 
theory about how these are all interrelated and then what really, you know, why do some people get this? Obviously you went to on a trip to Costa Rica with other people and not everybody got this, um, but your family did. And so what are some of your thoughts? Cause a lot, that's the biggest question, right? You know, in practice, you know, yeah. why did this happen to me? What's going on? It's of course so multifactorial, but I'm just so curious, um, you know, with your thoughts. Right. And this really probably does need to be another podcast. Yeah. We're going to, yeah. Honestly, we'll have you back, just, of course. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, and we're still picking things apart and plan to publish some of this. Oh, so great. some will we'll, uh, release in publications, which is probably the most effective way to do it. Most of this is outlined in the book, though, at least how we started to figure things out. Mass activation, I'm glad you brought that up because there's a fair amount of attention on that. And I know going through this, and I developed ultimately symptoms that corresponded with mass activation. And I remember thinking, this is it. It's got to be present just like it. Um, this must be what it is. And just kept digging. But um, mass activation is tricky because it does present with certain symptoms, right? You know, itching, hives, diarrhea, uh, anaphylaxis, um, etc. But tryptase ought to be high. That's one of the chemicals that mast cells kick out. Or patients should have anaphylaxis. And if patients don't present with one of those, we need to consider possibilities that it's something else, that it's something that mimics mast cell activation. I think that's important. In fact, there was a recent publication uh, from mast cell experts, actually recent, like last month, where it was called um, Doctor, I Think I Have Mast Cell Activation. And they covered 48 differential diagnoses for mast cell activation. And I will have to say that I don't think most doctors are going through those. We do at POTS care because we have to. We've got to stay in the science. But um, having said that, if mast cells are an issue, you have to make sure your vagus nerve is working well. So the vagus nerve is what helps to control mast cells. Um, that's part of that anti-inflammatory pathway we mentioned. So if your vagus nerve is not working well for any reason, be it acetylcholine damage, whatever, then um, you're more likely to have problems with chronic inflammation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, when people are in this, you know, world and searching for answers, sometimes we over apply, you know, diagnoses with what the trend is and not maybe looking at all the other, you know, factors. So I think that's a really good point. I, I think we all go through that, Christine, mm-hmm. honestly. I know I did. I went down every tangent, you know, and and I think where it was important in our case that my family was that when we went down one of those tangents, if it turned out to be not correct, we exited and moved ahead. And I, my heart really breaks for people who end up stuck in a tangent and they don't know what else to go to. You know, what else could this be? And um, that's always where we see people getting the sickest, I think, um, is treating it inappropriately because they went down the wrong wrong path Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right and the path you know should lead to progress right so if you're not seeing the progress you know reflecting on changing the course and you know pivoting your you know your thought and your team and I think that's a really really good point also as patients we're so sick right Mm -hmm. we seek validation and that was such a goal for me I needed someone to validate the fact 
that my kids and I were suffering so much that this wasn't some mild something. It wasn't a psychological condition. We need labels. And if someone gives us a label, we will hang on to that label because Mm -hmm. we need validation. And sometimes that works against us. Um, So, but I totally understand. I have been there. Totally get it. No, I think it's a really important thing to presence. Um, And so then, Diana, um, you know, you obviously created this product. And then did you, um, your experience and kind of what you've seen in practice. So once people start taking this, is this something that, you know, is lifelong? Or is there a period of time where people kind of restore, um, you know, the function and their levels, you know, of acetylcholine and then their body, um, you know, can then you know, become more resilient and re- the symptoms resolve? It is such a good question. And what we do, just staying in the science, first we figure out or do our best to figure out um, why did that work? And mm-hmm. there are situations where, say, stimulating the vagus nerve, like you had mentioned, like gag, or, mm-hmm. or we can splash cold water, or hum, or meditate, or whatever. There are situations where those methods don't work. And if we look at those, it helps give us answers to your question. Um, the situations that those methods won't work is, say, if the, the nerve is damaged, for example, and it is such a long nerve, there are so many opportunities for it to get damaged. So if it's damaged in abdominal surgery, heart ablation, you know, an accident, trauma, whiplash, what have you, you can stimulate that nerve till the cows come home and nothing's going to happen. That's not going to work. Parasim Plus works around a damaged nerve because we're going right for either the postganglionic nerve or the receptor itself. So if the nerve is damaged, that'd be one person who would probably need it chronically. Those genetic issues I told you about with the production of acetylcholine, we see those every once in a while. And those people are 100% dependent upon it. But it is so awesome to see. I remember the first one at Potscare who had one of these genes. She had never had a normal bowel movement. And um, yeah, she had a normal bowel movement. It was it was such a huge celebration for her. It was really life-changing. Now, the other thing we figured out, and this was a combination of our research and others, and this is probably the most critical, that certain inflammatory cytokines, and that's uh, proteins that are released by certain inflammatory cells like interleukin-1 beta, TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, etc., they can block the release of acetylcholine. So if that's the case, you can stimulate that nerve again and nothing happens. And I had insight into this because being an eye doctor, we know about Sjogren's syndrome, and that's a condition that can cause fairly dramatic dry eyes and dry mouth. It's an inflammatory condition. And in that condition, the inflammatory cytokines and to some degree, the inflammatory cells block the release of acetylcholine. If you try to stimulate that lacrimal nerve, the acetylcholine does not come out. So if that's the case also, if you're a chronic inflammatory patient, um, that could include obesity or autoimmunity, aging even, or some other genetic issue with inflammation, then again, we have to work around um, the inflammatory cytokines and the fact that nerve is not going to work without it. So in my case, I did get to the point, Christine, where I thought, I don't think I need this anymore. My fatigue had long gone. And um, I thought my bowel movements were 
good enough without it. I, w- I went to the bathroom like twice a week and I thought, that's pretty good, right? Is, is that good? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And I figured out, no, that wasn't good. I ended up with pancreatitis. And I remember, one, it was terrifying because that can be so um, uh, serious. And just the testing for it is not pretty. So I thought, is there any chance getting the vagus nerve back on board is going to help nudge that pancreas and control some inflammation because pancreatitis is inflammatory. And sure enough, it took a couple of days and things started to turn around. And uh, that's when I told my husband, we've, we've got to get this out for other people. So some of us, I know for myself, I can't do without it. Um, but everybody is a little bit different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you've also um, created a few other products and did this come out of other things that you felt you needed um, yeah. in your arsenal? And, um, you know, can you just share some other, you know, products that you've created as well? Yeah, it did. It was all about me for a long time. <laughs> hey, it drives, you know, it's definitely a motivating force, right? For sure. Right, right, absolutely. But um, I couldn't find a digestive enzyme that would be appropriate. And the reason I wanted to do this was while I was getting Parison Plus going, it took about four to six weeks in our studies for most everyone to get that the gut working more normally. It wasn't just all about bowel movements, but the organs had to pop back, you know? So I knew it was going to be a process and I wanted to support it from the other side, at least for a while. And then people who don't have gallbladders, fortunately I saved mine, but um, people who don't, sometimes it's helpful to have that. But if, if your vagus nerve is not working very well, you need support there. You tend to be very sensitive because you tend to have higher, higher levels of inflammation Again, because the vagus nerve isn't there to help help control that. So with highly sensitive people, we have to be careful of things like protease. Protease helps digest protein, which is great. But in higher levels, it is rough, um, especially on the stomach lining. It damages the mucus lining. So I wanted to find one with a really low level of protease. And then I didn't want any inulin in the mix. Inulin is a great prebiotic. Um, but it is one of the FODMAPs and people who have vagus nerve problems tend to lean toward a lot of bloating and, and that's those sort of issues. So we didn't want that. And I didn't want cellulase in there. I oftentimes see this put in and um, we sometimes think more is better, you know, but cellulase is is unusual because humans do not produce cellulase normally. Termites produce cellulase. Cows produce cellulase. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a separate stomach for it, but we need fiber. Cellulase um, breaks down cellulose, and we're not supposed to break that down because it makes our stools soft, and we need that. So uh, we came up with some digestive enzymes. And then, interestingly, um, a lot of us are on antihistamines because of either mast cell problems or conditions that mimic mast cell problems. And if we're on Zantac or any sort of acid reducer, or if we have high pressure, we tend to be on a lot of baking soda to keep medication working, then um, we need something to boost stomach acid when we eat. And um, didn't really have a way to do that. Apple cider vinegar is, is acidic and that can be great, but we didn't want to drink it because then there's acid going down your esophagus a lot. And again, we see a lot of inflammatory patients and 
that's not good. So um, it's kind of like GERD in reverse, if you will. So betaine hydrochloride was too strong for the sensitive people. So we put apple cider vinegar in a capsule, but we made it a lower pH than most out there because it wasn't just for benefits of apple cider. It was to help lower the pH to help the stomach acid for digestion and to kill some of the germs, et cetera. So um, we added ginger in that to help soothe the GI tract. We also saw a lot of nausea with vagus nerve problems and that combination is really great. And then we just expanded from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, I, these, um, other products, you know, definitely describe, you know, a lot of the symptoms I see as, um, you know, other, uh, as this, you know, constellation of, um, symptoms, you know, the nausea, the, you know, chronic small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and never, you know, where it gets recovered, you know, the ileocecal valve that gets stuck. And so, no, these, um, no, I'm, I'm excited to try these and it's, um, no, it, it makes a lot of sense to support, um, you know, when the vagus nerve or the acetylcholine deficiency is happening, these other things can, because that's what makes people miserable, right? The chronic nausea right. and the bloating and, you know, the constipation. So, um, right. so I, I think that's great. Um, and that brain fog too, I will mention to you, it, it got so bad for me. I just had no short-term memory and I was tested because I had applied for disability and they did an IQ test and they snuck in um, testing for short-term memory. I just had zero. And at first I told my neurologist and we had to laugh, you know, like I had this news week in the bathroom that every day I'd look at it and I go, wow, what an interesting story. I didn't know that. You know, the next day I'd open it. Wow. What an interesting story. I didn't know that. So I've had the same news week in that bathroom for six weeks and every day is brand new to me, but it got scary. It got to the point I lost the ability to read the, my eyes were going over the words and it wasn't making it to the brain. And then I couldn't stay awake, but the difference in cognition, the ability to stay mentally alert and to start to organize my thoughts again, certainly to read again, et cetera, uh, returned. And my neurologist was convinced I had some neurodegenerative condition and I exhibited that way. It wasn't subtle, certainly. So pulling myself out of that fire was also very dramatic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brain fog is a real big issue in a lot of our patients as well. And again, yeah. you know, it's multifactorial, but it seems, you know, with mm-hmm. your, you know, formula with um, being able to access the brain and cross the blood brain barrier is, you know, half the battle, right? You know, we can have yeah. all the ideas in the world, but if the medicine doesn't get to the right place, um, right. you know, doesn't create the symptom relief. So then, Diana, you've mentioned Potscare a few times, and this is um, your clinic, and you're, you specialize in um, treating POTS as a result of, you know, your journey. Can you tell a little bit about, you know, mm-hmm. what makes your clinic different, and if people are listening and, you know, have been struggling out there for a long time, you know, who's the right fit for your clinic? Right. Um this, this is really just a dream come true. I have to pinch myself some days when I see my name on scrubs and, and think I made it to that other side. You know, we think as a sick person, we'll never be on that other side. And, and it's really amazing to help people. But I think the traditional treatment for POTS, and they certainly tried it with me, is high doses of salt, beta blockers, compression hose, antidepressants. And 
to some degree mestinon or mitodrine. I was unsuccessful in all of those. I just got worse every year. So we're here to start to look at the entire picture to figure out in every case, what is the medical cause? This is a medical condition. It can exhibit with psych symptoms ultimately then there too, but it is a medical condition. We want to figure out what is causing the POTS. POTS is is honestly, it's a symptom. It's not a disease. It's not a disease process. And right now we're the only ones doing that. So we can do now retrospective analyses, which we plan to do, which are a lot less expensive than the studies we were doing to release some of the information. And that's where we're headed with this. It is a personal mission. It really is to get this out. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. And I love that, you know, you've really taken your journey and you're helping so many others. And, you know, as you're, you know, looking at the theme of the people that you're treating, and I, I really like how you said POTS is a symptom, right? It's not, you know, the condition. What are some of the common themes that you see for you? Was it the viral trigger, you know, to the virus that, you know, created um, the POTS symptom? But what are what are the, the themes that you're seeing? Yeah, and we see it all, honestly. Mm-hmm. Here, we see it all. <laughs> I bet. So, I, bet. I have a list of 40 conditions that um, we have to examine. Even, like I mentioned, um, those who exhibit as if it might be mast cell, if tryptase is normal and, and they're not having true anaphylaxis, we've, we've got a bunch of things we need to run through, too. So, we we focus a great deal on, um, we want to figure out if there's abnormal intracranial pressure and it's not everybody, but it is over half. It's about 65%. And, uh, we want to figure that out. We do look at vagus nerve issues, GI issues, or we have to consider everything, but we've seen every trigger known to man, everything from viruses like myself. My son was also triggered by viruses, just three regular viruses. Um, my daughter, we really can't identify any trigger for her. And we see those patients too. We've seen a few uh, triggered by high levels of stress. And that's kind of that PTSD association too. There's some similar changes going on there. We look closely at the brain MRI and we're certainly the only ones who are going into the eyes to look for issues. We want to find out if there's vascular problems going on. We look at the immune system. Uh, We certainly want to rule out any autoimmune condition participating. We look closely for clotting. We see a fair amount of clotting here. So we, we consider it all. We have the, <laughs> a tremendous number of spreadsheets and um, mm-hmm. algorithms that help start spitting things out for us. But honestly, so much of this, um, you can't rely on spreadsheets so well because the, settles, the, the symptoms can be fairly subtle, but they can tell me something fairly dramatic. So I like to hear from every person, you know, what they're feeling, what they, how it presents to them. And um, that helps. And I think like we see a lot of, we don't have another word for this, Christine, we call them episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I called it when I went through it. And, and they're just fairly dramatic times of fast heart rate, maybe some flushing, you feel like you're dying. Um, and you get sometimes tremor, even like a pseudo seizure presentation. We want to try to figure those out. And um, those are not being recognized. Uh, by other doctors. I just don't get it. I really don't. But they can be tremendous in 
very frightening, both for the patient and any relative or friend or spouse or whatever who sees those. They can be very scary. So we understand those intimately. <laughs> so sadly, personally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, well, Diana, your story is so inspiring and it's just amazing how, you know, you really, um, you know, turn this very difficult and challenging time for yourself and your family into, you know, just transforming not only your health, but, you know, sharing this, you know, with everybody and, you know, creating a supplement line and having your clinic and, you know, that is all so much work. And I know it must be, you know, so rewarding on so many levels and, um, no, I'm really excited to get to know your work and your research and your products um, better so we can, you know, help more people at our practice, you know, as well. And so, um, yeah, is there anything, Diana, you want to leave us with, um, you know, as we wrap up, um, you know, our, our interview? Yeah, I think if nothing else, um, please note there's always hope. And as sick as I was and as old as I am, if I could recover, there is always hope for everyone. And it was a horribly tough journey for, for me and my children, but there are answers. We stay in the science, right? But great minds like yours, you're willing to share what you've learned too. And and that combination with some personal experience is a powerful one. So there's always hope. And what we learned also can help those who are not as sick or not as dramatically sick, but who want to live the best life they can. And I plan to be very proactive mm-hmm. as, as I grow older. I've already feel like I've been through Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. <laughs> I mean, you name it, I felt like I was there and just got sucked back into normalcy. It was the strangest journey. I would like to try to keep from going back there. So being proactive, I think is important in our health, sick or, um, or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, thank you so much for sharing that. And I agree. It's so important, um, you know, to have hope and to really, you know, connect with the people, um, in your community, there's always an answer. And if you're not getting the answer, I love your saying, stick with the science, you know, the science is there and, you know, there's a lot of experience out there too. And, um, you know, just remaining curious. And if you don't like the answer you're getting from your doctor, you know, find another doctor until you really, you know, get the results that, we all want for you. Um, Absolutely. So Diana, how can people find out more about you and your work? We'll have a link to your website in the, in our, the notes, but please share that with us as well today. Yes, absolutely. When when I was sick, I set up a blog, uh, prettyill.com. It's still out there. There's a forum on there where I answer questions at no charge. I'm up to close to 1,500 questions at this point. Wow. Um, and I'm always there. Well, once or twice a week anyway. <laughs> um, but I'm full-time at POTS Care now. So it's potscare.com. And then uh, the research, we've we've gotten most of that on uh, the site Vegas Nerve Support, where I put the supplements. And I think that's most of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of spread out, aren't I? <laughs> but yeah, what started as a, you know, a patient journey is morphed and I didn't really anticipate that. But yeah, happy it did. Well, thank you so much for your time and all of this information and sharing your story today. And um, we'll have all of this information again in the show notes. And thank you so much for the interview. Thank you. I appreciate it so much, Christine. Thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Driscoll. And if you're suffering from POTS and trying to um, further investigate this illness, please check out 
her website at potscare.com. And if you're enjoying these episodes and if you have any um, speakers you'd like me to interview, please reach out to info at drchristineshoffner.com. Thanks again.